Thank you, Kyler. Amber, I said I wasn't gonna try to run the slides from here, but I think I might be able to do it, and that may just make it the easiest, but we'll see. So those of you that don't know me, which I don't think is very many people here, my name is Chaz. Um, I'm one of the uh, pastors here at Christ City Church, and uh, typically I do what Kyler just did and lead us in song, but uh, Jeremy and Deidre and the family are out of town. Um, they had a prior commitment, so um, you guys got me instead. So hopefully that's not too bad, but... Yes, in light of Father's Day, uh, I figured it would be appropriate to begin with a few dad jokes. My wife, Amber, always tells me that I'm supposed to start every sermon with a joke. Now, I don't always do that, and I don't know where she learned that, or is that something they teach in seminary? Uh, but I didn't go to seminary, so maybe that's why I don't get it. But she said, always start with a joke to break the ice, so that's what we're going to do. So, singing in the shower is fun until you get soap in your mouth, and then it's just a soap opera. Why do fathers take an extra pair of socks when they go golfing? Oh, so it's a mom joke now. Okay, what about this one? Why do seagulls fly over the sea? Because if they flew over the bay, they would be bagels. Oh, you knew. Oh, okay, okay, this is a Q&A now. Uh, what do you call a line of men waiting to get haircuts? A barbecue. So those were those were good, but these next this next this last one you got to be smart to get this next one. Okay, you got to you got to be quick. So uh, it's definitely a dad joke for that reason because everyone knows dad jokes aren't that quick. Um, so I ordered um, a chicken and an egg online from Amazon. I'll let you know. I watched, there was like a definite, some of you got it right away, some of you still don't get it, but it's okay. So in all seriousness, um, dad jokes aside, um, to all the dads in the room, let me just say a few things about that briefly. Um, let's face it, I'm a dad, those of you that are dads know this, but if you've had a dad, which all of us in this room have a dad of some sort or another, um, we all know that that's actually a pretty big responsibility to be a dad, to be a father. You know, they've done a lot of studies on this, and um, it's probably true, uh, just varying degrees, of course, but it's probably true that the way that we come to know and experience the love of our father is one of the most influential and significant influences on how we come to know and love and experience the love of God. So no pressure to all the dads in the room, but... You know, you have a pretty important task. And, you know, uh, I feel like, you know, we're not going to give you roses or anything. I feel like Father's Day is totally different than, like, Mother's Day. Like, I feel like, you know, Father's Day, you can kind of just give it to you straight, right? So I want to encourage you this morning. I want to say, strive to be generous. Strive to be gracious. To be compassionate. To be kind. And to be patient. Matter of fact, everything about this Sunday morning is a text we're going to be in. Patience. The patience of the Father. The patience of God. You know, your children will grow up whether you want them to or not. So there's really no hurry. Be patient. Be kind. And as one dad to another, not at all suggesting that I have it figured out by any stretch, 
Let me just say this as a way of encouragement. To the fathers that I know at Christ City Church, the people that I watch father their children, who I see discipline and love and care for their children, stay close to their children, let me just say this. You're doing great. You're doing great. I look at the fathers in Christ City Church, and I'm honored and privileged to learn from you and be challenged by you. I don't know why I'm getting so emotional all of a sudden. You guys make me a better father, and I'm grateful for how God uses each of you. Okay. Sorry, the, the tears are supposed to be later. I don't know what's going on. Um, but if you would, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 13? That's going to be our text this morning. We're going to read from Luke chapter 13, verse 9 verses. And this is going to feel like quite a, uh, it's going to feel like a hard left turn, you know, from the joy and celebration of a baptism, you know, the cheering, the clapping, it's, uh, and then even the kind of mushy sentiment of Father's Day that I just expressed, and then now we're going to read this. So it may feel like it's completely unrelated, and it's going to feel at first like a, just a, a somewhat of an abrasive, you know, like, whoa, where did, this doesn't fit the, the mood of the, of the morning. Uh, but I think as we go and before we're done, we'll see that actually it's quite appropriate and uh, gets at the heart of uh, what we're all doing here today, which is to worship and celebrate Jesus Christ. So I'm going to read for us from Luke chapter 13. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. There was some present at that very time who told him, that's Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone. This year also, until I dig around it, and put on manure, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So I want to start by asking a question. And the question is, have you ever given up on something? Like, have you ever tried something, attempted something, been involved with something, and then just decided it wasn't for you anymore? So take a minute, just think back over your life. If you're, if you're older, you may have quite a bit to sift through this morning. Maybe you gave up on a hobby or a professional career, a relationship, some kind of personal goal, spiritual, emotional, relational, maybe a health-related goal. Or if you're a bit younger, maybe like a kid, you may not have as much to like look back on over the course of your life, but even as kids, maybe even particularly as children, we know what it's like to try something new to learn a new sport, to try a new skill, and maybe in doing so you found it to be kind of hard, difficult. So difficult that maybe you decided to give it up. Now, whether you're young or old, 
I'm pretty sure all of us have experienced some degree of giving up. We find something difficult, challenging, uncomfortable, familiar, unfamiliar, and at some point we decide, look, this just simply isn't worth the trouble anymore. I'm done with this. We have that kind of dialogue between ourselves. you know. There's, there's just no point trying anymore. It's useless. I'm over it is kind of the, the word of the day. Of course, sometimes the stakes aren't very high, right? Sometimes you just tried to learn how to garden. And so apart from like a few wasted Saturdays, 50 bucks and a low sore back, like, or a sore lower back, you know, no, not really a big deal. But other times our giving up can have some pretty severe consequences. Sometimes we give up on relationships. We check out, stop trying. Sometimes we give up on loved ones. Sometimes we give up on ourselves. And sometimes we give up on Jesus. So I say all that, really just a preamble, and we'll return to this question of giving up later. But for now, let's begin with those first few verses from Luke, Luke 13 that maybe see, seem a bit out of place. And so bear with me for a moment. I'm just going to kind of retell the story a bit, um, but kind of fill in some of the context. And um, I should say, I know there's, there's some younger ones present with us, and so the story we have today is kind of graphic. And so I definitely don't mean to be uh, gratuitous. Um, it is in the Bible, after all, after all, but it's, it's going somewhere. So, as we just read, right, scene of Luke 13 begins. A few people come to Jesus. They've been following him around. They come and they ask him, Hey, did you hear about what happened to the Galileans that piled, uh, Pilate mingled their blood with the sacrifices? Some recent incident. And we don't really know um, the particular, like the exact historical incident that they're speaking of, but... Um, it's, it's really just what it sounds like. The Roman authorities came in to some worship gathering that the Jewish people were participating on, in and killed them. It was bloody. It was violent. It was gruesome. Heinous. And in, in, in that context, it was profane and sacrilegious. So, happy Father's Day. Just trying to make you all feel really good. And we can probably assume that the question askers were kind of a bit um, grief-stricken, you know? Worried, anxious, probably a little confused, perhaps a bit indignant and angry. And as is often the case when such atrocities occur, they were probably some mixture of all of that. I'm trying to move this around so that'll stop buzzing. So, they, you know, it's probably some mixture of all of that. But we learn a bit more about the motive behind this question from Jesus with how he responds to their question. He responds to their question with a question of his own, which is kind of typical Jesus fashion, right? He then says, what do you think? Did you think that the Galileans were worse than you and that's why they suffered in this way? And then Jesus tells them about this other you know, horrible event, this other tragic thing that happened. And he asked them if they know about the time that the tower fell and killed 18 people. Do you also think that they are worse sinners than you because they had the bad luck to be in the wrong place at the wrong time? And it's just a, it's a very kind of perplexing response, right? Like, you come to Jesus, you ask him about some horrible thing that you know of, and you're wondering what's going on. Some events happened. You're kind of upset about it. You're just wanting to kind of get in on like, hey, what do you make of this, Jesus? And his response is, well, do you think you're worse or you're better? What about this other time? And then he adds this for, you know, just a, a, the icing on the whole conversation. Unless you repent, 
you will all likewise perish. It's just this strange exchange, and we wonder, it's like, thanks for the comforting words, Jesus, you know? Um, it, it just kind of strikes us as odd. But it's not as odd as it sounds. So let's tease it out a bit. You've probably heard someone say something like uh, the following before. Tell me if you've ever heard anyone say this. The gospel is bad news before it's good news. Have you ever heard anybody say that? The gospel is bad news before it is good news. Of course, you know, it's a bit reductive way to talk about the story of salvation. It's not simply this two-step movement of bad news to good news. The generous, abundant grace of God in Jesus Christ is certainly more than bad news than good news. But there is a sense in which this gets at what is going on in this exchange quite well. Because here, Jesus is pointing out the bad news. This is the bad news. You've probably already noticed how eerily familiar some of this exchange is to some of the events in our own day. How often they are repeated in history and how such things are way too common today. We don't have to look very far to see the bad news. The bad news is everywhere. I mean, think about just even these three or four verses, like the last 12 months of our life collectively as a country, as a world, it's all here. Someone in power who is corrupt and does corrupt things. Needless and senseless violence and killing. The confusing way that sometimes it just seems like mere chance and bad luck takes the people that we care about. Governing life and death. This is the fallen world we live in. This is the result of sin. You have, in verse 1, you have a choice made by a human being to kill. You have choice that's carried out in sinful ways. And then you have just the fallen nature of nature itself. Corrupted human nature and corrupted nature. A fallen humanity and a fallen universe. Whether choice or chance, within or without, sin has infected all of God's creation what he originally called good. But of course, sometimes in an effort to kind of numb ourselves to this, to, to step around this, I think a lot of us, and this is maybe what Jesus is getting at, try to step around this and ignore this and fall into a trap. So maybe this isn't, doesn't happen to you, but, it, but honestly, it's so subtle that we wouldn't even notice it if it did. The trap is so subtle that even if we kind of fall into it and get swept up by it and start to see the world this way and to experience others in this way, walk through life in this way, most of the time, we're not even aware of it. People in this story certainly didn't realize it was going on, but Jesus, knowing their hearts, seeing what's going on inside of them, calls them on the carpet. Takes Jesus to show them the rock bottom reality of their heart and the posture and the trap that they found themselves in. And if we're not careful, our response to sin in ourselves and in others and in the world and to all the bad news that constantly berates us, if we're not careful, our response might be the same. Kind of unknowingly doing what I'm about to uh, describe. Sometimes our defensive response to tragedy and to violence, to suffering and confusion is not humility and grace and perseverance. It's not faith or love, but instead, sometimes, our heart is twisted in pride and arrogance and self-conceit. Here's what I mean. Jesus says, what do you think that they were worse than you? 
In other words, Jesus calls out the two, the two heart postures that these questioners seem to have. And see if you've ever noticed this going on in your own heart, your own mind. See if you've ever fallen into this trap. Number one, they seem to think they are less sinful than other people. Granted, they didn't say that to Jesus, but Jesus sees into them, kind of knows what's going on. And if you think about it, this is the exact opposite of what Paul says later to Timothy when he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. 1 Timothy 1.15. In a way, that is sometimes, in, in, in a certain way, that's what Kate proclaimed this morning when she went under the water. Before she went under the water, Christ Jesus came to save, and I am one of the worst of them. And number two, the second heart posture they seem to have is a confused understanding of how God works. In other words, is this really how God operates? He looks out over all of creation and then only punishes the worst of us, only the bad people the worst people. Is this the way that God is really even portrayed in the Old Testament, which would have been what the Jewish people asking these questions had before them? Genesis begins with God not killing Adam and Eve, and just, it, it's a funny kind of joke, but in a real way, like, they were the worst people on the earth at that time. Instead, he covers their nakedness, covers their shame. I mean, in the very next story we're given, when Cain kills his brother Abel, again, probably literally one of the worst people on the earth at that time, does God punish him? Does God kill him? No, he actually protects him. says, no harm shall come to Cain. So in a weird twist, God actually protects Cain. And of course, none of us would ever explicitly say that we're better than other people. We would never say that we think that's how God works. We would use different language. We would talk. Ugh. This, is the, this is the way that I usually talk about it. You know, we talk about the difference between being wise and being foolish. You know, bad things happen to foolish people, but good things happen to wise people. Some people are wise. Others are just foolish. You can't outrun foolishness. Something to that effect. And we never explicitly say that we think that's how God works. Again, we use different language. Instead, we'll talk, and I don't mean to offend anyone, but instead we'll talk about some abstracted notion of God's justice and his holiness. That when bad things happen to bad people, God is just kind of executing his plan. As a stand-in for what we really mean, which is they got what they deserved. But of course, just like with these first century Jewish people, Jesus sees our hearts, he knows us all too well, and we aren't fooling him. And so these two uh, kind of heart postures, if we bring them together, I submit to you that these, these come together and produce a view of the world that goes like this. Good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, and this becomes effectively our functional good news. Just mind your manners. Make sure you're well-behaved, that you do everything right, that you don't make mistakes, you find yourself in the right place with the right people, being good and getting good, and it's really that simple. This is the good news. Good people get good things. But is this really the good news? Is this really the gospel? So Jesus says firmly, in fact, repent. 
Repent from this way of thinking. Repent from thinking about yourself and about God in this way. Repent from all your sin. Repent from your skewed way of seeing God and the world. Repent from the bad you do and from the good you do. Repent and be saved. That's why Jesus tells the parable of the fig tree. The, the fig tree. It illustrates this human tendency to give up. So we'll kind of return to the giving up now. It directly confronts our tendency to look out at other people, to look at ourselves, to look at the world, to look at this life of faith, to look out and see no fruit. To see the suffering and the pain and the bad news everywhere and to give up. We see only the pain, only the lack of life, only the fruitlessness, tired and worn out and beleaguered and beat up. We give up. We get angry or impatient or frustrated or discouraged, and we simply think we are making the wisest, most prudent, most efficient and pragmatic choice that we can. Cut it down. That ground is good ground. We could use it for something else. Why keep beating a dead horse? What's the point? But God and Jesus in this parable comes and says, hold on, wait a minute. Slow down, don't get ahead of yourself. And I believe it's here that the good news comes into focus. The Lord is patient. He is steadfast. He doesn't give up. He doesn't give up on you. He doesn't give up on your loved ones. He doesn't give up on your friends. He doesn't give up on his church. And he doesn't give up on all of creation. Of all that I might say today, I think this is probably the most important thing I could say. God and Jesus Christ will not give up on you. And this is the good news. Today we were privileged to a baptism that reminded us all of this promise. But I have a feeling that there are some here, perhaps, that feel like giving up, who are tired and worn out. And they're questioning whether God's promise or whether God is really going to keep his promise for them. Jesus tells this story of this fig tree, this fruitless fig tree, to remind us that God is not in the business of giving up. His love never quits. In the world's eyes, it might look as though there is no fruit. To the world, it might look like nothing's happening, like it's, there is no life here. Nothing worth tending to. But... Second Peter, we read, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You may remember that from our series on Second Peter last summer. And there's this word again, repentance. Now, up till now, I may have made it sound as though giving up is a bad thing. But when we think about this word repentance, in fact, um, giving up becomes very important to the life of faith. And this is the big twist at the end. You actually need to give up. That's actually part of the gospel good news, part of the story. Today, I'm actually hoping that like Kate, you all will give up. 
part of the life, quite literally, part of the life of faith, quite literally, is giving up. Give up on trying to save yourself. Give up on your self-help and religious performance. Give up on trying to play God. Give up on all your wrong ways of thinking and believing. Give up. Give up on trying to control everything. Give up on trying to justify yourself. Give up on proving and validating yourself. Give up on being so judgmental and so self-righteous that you're intolerable. Give up on the idea that you are God, that the world revolves around you, and that you are just fine on your own apart from God. Give up. In the language of Jesus, repent. The good news is that by reaching the end of ourselves, that when we come to this place, by coming to the end of our good works and our sinful ways, by dying to ourselves, by going under the waters, by being buried with Christ, we are then raised with him and brought through the waters, born again. So wherever you happen today, whether you're, wherever you happen to be today, whether your faith is vibrant or dull, young or old, lukewarm or fiery hot, whether you're doubting or believing, I have good news for you. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Let me close by just saying, friends, family, brothers, sisters, the Lord loves you and cares for you. This is what Kate entered into this morning. This is what we celebrate this morning. The Lord who loves us will not leave us nor forsake us. He is with you. He is mindful, with, mindful of you. He sees you. He sees your pain. He sees your confusion. He sees your despairing. He is with you. He is near to the brokenhearted, close to the crushed in spirit. He loves the sinner and the outcast. He loves you who work hard to keep it all together. He loves you who follow all the rules and do so well. And he loves you when you make mistakes, when you fall short, and when you measure up. He loves you when you fail and when you succeed, when you do well and when you don't. He loves you when you misstep, when you make mistakes, and when you do everything right. He loves you. He loves you when you are faithful, and he loves you when you are fruitless. And this is the good news. This is the gospel. Psalm 107 said it quite well. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you um, for, yeah, just a, a beautiful reminder of your goodness, your grace to us and for us. Lord, we do, we celebrate this morning rejoicing at new life. May each of us be reminded of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, how he loves us, how he dies for us, and how he raises us with him to new life. Lord, may we come to know and believe and experience the patience of God with us, but, we, but may we never grow weary of doing good. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.